hello and welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Joe Weisenthal. And I'm Tracy Alloway. So I don't know what day people are going to be listening to this episode, but, um, you know, uh, the stock market hit a record high yesterday. Yeah, it's true. So all the losses that we saw during the COVID crisis have basically been erased and markets are back where they were before all of this happened. Yeah, it's essentially uh, six months from the pre-crisis peak to this one. So I think the S&P peaked at, um, February, on February 15th, and then we saw the, uh, the new peak yesterday, August 18th. And in a sense, it really feels like we've compressed this sort of gigantic cycle into an extremely short period of time. Yeah, that's true. And I was looking at the latest uh, fund manager survey from Bank of America, and it showed that I, I think fund managers have completely flipped from thinking that we're in a recession <laughs> to thinking that we're in the early stages of a fresh economic cycle. And if they're right, to your point, it does suggest that we've just seen, you know, one of the shortest recessions of all time. Yeah, I mean, you could make the argument that the recession recession in terms of the shrinking of growth was done by the end of March when most uh, data points um, started turning up. And while the overall level of economic activity is still very depressed, and of course, unemployment rate is still above 10%, so hardly time to be declaring victory, we have seen steady improvement on a host of economic data points, basically since end of March, uh, early April. That's true. But I also feel like there's something kind of weird going on with the data. Like there's the old stock versus flow argument, which we're seeing everywhere, but particularly in PMIs. So even when we get a big rebound in PMIs, it doesn't necessarily mean that we're getting back to the levels that we saw um, pre-crisis. But you're also seeing just sort of weird indicators that are happening simultaneously. And I think one of our colleagues pointed out a really good one recently, and that was intentions to buy a house surging at the same time as mortgage delinquencies, which, I mean, never happens in an economic crisis. No, it's really weird. But I think because of all the weirdness that we're seeing, this sort of contrary indicators, because there's this weird um, gap between paces of change, which have been very fast and unexpected versus levels, which are still at very bad levels. And then also just the fact that it's so compressed, there's probably never been more demand for sort of alternative real-time data points. And this feeling that the official economic data points that we get, monthly jobs report, monthly retail sales report, they just, there's not enough of them. They're not timely enough to get a sense of what's going on, given how fast the changes have been both on the downturn and the rebound. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, just on a very simple basis, everyone wants to know what's going on with the recovery, right? And everyone's tracking to what degree the economy has reopened. And some of the most useful indicators for that are arguably alternative economic indicators like, um, like open table reservations, uh, things like that. Yeah, totally. I mean, that is like one of the things we've been watching the most. It's like open table. They can keep track of people uh, making reservations or doing in-seating dining. So if you want to sort of understand how behavior has changed or how people are doing different things um, due to the virus, that's been one of the sort of key data points, not something that people were really tracking uh, before, as far as I know, on a meaningful level. So. I think this is really important. I mean, I think obviously real-time alternative data has never been more in demand 
uh, than what we've seen over the last uh, six months. But I don't think it's going away now. It's kind of one, another one of these things where real-time data points of a range of things will sort of be part of the conversation for a long time, even if and when we get back to something resembling a normal economy. Yeah, I think that's right. So today we are going to be talking all about alternative data, what it's showing, and more importantly, how investors actually use it in their uh, process. And so we're going to be speaking with Ben Breitholtz. He's a data scientist at Arbor Data Science, which is part of Arbor Research and Trading. Uh, I've been following their stuff. They do some really interesting uh, things with looking at Google search trends for lots of different keywords and trying to uh, divine and economic significance from them. So let's talk more about that. Uh, ben, thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, thank you very much, Joe. Happy to be here. So let's just start uh, big picture. What do you do? What is Arbor Data Science? Talk to us a little bit about your work. Sure. So over the years, uh, we've gotten more and more into essentially this idea of filling the gaps between latent economic data uh, and econ data that can be distorted, like we've seen with unemployment data as of late, and also really trying to help our customers and the investment space in general deal with surveys that have been more or less leading indicators for quite some time, they've kind of fallen flat on their face. And this is something that's taken place uh, well before um, yeah, even the current episode we're going through now, uh, looking back to around the financial crisis with really the polarization uh, of the, the country and the world on a political space and really the advent of social media has created really this bifurcation in, in sentiment. Uh, it can be Republican, Democrat, or it can be more or less groupthink based on mm. um, the use of Facebook, Twitter. We create all these small microcosms we essentially live within. And that has ultimately distorted the ability of survey data, for example, to have this leading nature that it used to have really for decades. Um, and that's posed a significant problem for investors that are inputting this either on a subjective level or within their own mind modeling to then project forward where they think financial markets will go um, in the future. I have a really basic question, which is what's the difference between big data and a large set of data? <laughs> So big data is such a misnomer and um, nasty term. You know, most, uh, I think big data is a term that's kind of slowly um, gone away. The, I think the initial idea is that it's it's unstructured data that's, for example, you can find all this wonderful information on the Bloomberg terminal, all right? Uh, and it comes, you can download it uh, via an API or access it via um, via your, your windows or your terminal, all nice, clean, and easy to use, ready to input. And big data, um, to me, uh, this day and age, especially with alternative data, has to do with more or less unstructured kind of ugly data. So this, for example, could be all just like us talking right now, or when you are all on TV, you have all of this this text, this closed captioning that exists out there. And let's say, for example, it's in 15 second increments. And it can be ugly. It can be have plenty of errors within the data, within the closed captioning. Um, and essentially, we have to use algorithms and different processes in order to take that unstructured data and make it something useful and really turn it into something that's uh, more or less numerical in order to benchmark against financial markets, econ data, overall sentiment, uh, and so on. So, you know, big data. Data is kind of a, a word, I think, that's somewhat going away. But to me, again, it means somewhat of an unstructured data set. So I'm thinking about what you described as the problem with surveys. And 
uh, you know, I, I think it's either the University of Michigan Consumer Sentiment Survey or the Conference Board one. There's one of these data points. We have it on the Bloomberg terminal. And it's like they say, oh, is now a good time to buy a washing machine? Is now a good time to buy a car? There's even one that's one of my favorites. Is now a good time to buy a vacuum cleaner? <laughs> but I guess what you're doing is you don't have to ask people, is now a good time to buy a vacuum cleaner? Because in 2020, if you know how to find the data, you can just look at searches for vacuum cleaners, and that's presumably a lot more reliable than asking people in the survey whether now is a good time to buy a vacuum cleaner. Right. So the within surveys, there's and there's a plenty of studies on this uh, as of late showing that uh, respondents will not provide really honest answers relating to their financial hardship. So there's there's large gaps in, hmm. you know, are, are things better now or worse? Are you going to spend, do you have the money to spend here moving forward on a vacuum, on a new wash machine and so on? And there's always been a gap, for example, example between the web-based responses and phone-based. And we saw this too with the election, that's a whole other whole topic. But um, on a web-based survey, individuals are typically much more honest than they are regarding financial hardship than they are on the telephone or basically being put on the spot. So the idea here between behind search activity, and this is something that I think that has improved in most recent years, is yes, we can get ahead of this intention of consumers, and we're not necessarily, you know, we're not really going to lie to that little window on Google. Um, you know, we might lie maybe sometimes to our girlfriends or our, our boyfriends or husbands or wives, um, but you know, what we put into that search window is really truly what we're seeking and what we're actually trying to query. There's no no one really looking over our shoulder, so. So our belief is that search activity um, really over the past five, six years has become kind of a, a great estimate or indication of the consumer's intentions of what they plan to do. Am I going to buy a wash machine? Or if I'm in distress, what does it mean if I default um, on my credit card payment or I don't pay my credit card payment? Or what if I need to go out and search and find a bankruptcy lawyer? These are the type of things we can pick up on uh, you know, within this information to then create a kind of um, you know, overall look at the consumer. And this can be all the way from the you know up towards the United States, the complete um, you know, country level. It can be worldwide and it can be drilled down all the way down to a metropolitan area. Um, and again, the whole idea there is trying to get the most honest representation of, of the mm -hmm. individual. And I'll also say that the growth um, in the internet and really access to the internet, both mobile and on the PC, has been a big boon for search activity. So you now have 59% of the world having internet access and using it on an active basis. That's more than four and a half billion individuals, which has really doubled, if not tripled, since the financial crisis. So I think early efforts of using search activity um, is, and I know a lot of it pre-crisis kind of fell on its face and kind of faded away. Google used to have these curated indices. Um, I think they had 25 of them kind of showing how the economy, economy was moving um, here and there. Uh, I think that that if, what didn't work as well because we didn't have the ubiquity of Google searches and really internet access. And as that improves, this type of information becomes that much more important, I think, to the investing process. Hmm. How much do you think the the unusual or the extreme circumstances surrounding the coronavirus crisis are are distorting survey responses? And I ask that because again, I've seen a lot of criticism of the PMIs recently, and one of the things people 
are saying about those surveys at the moment is that respondents aren't really judging their experiences on a month to month basis, but they're sort of responding by comparing now to a period of relative normality. So everything's getting skewed. Do you think the unusualness of, of our current circumstances might be skewing survey data as well? Yes, I think so. I think it's it's a combination, like you said earlier, with stock flow. It's what type of reaction have we had uh, over the past couple of months, um, I think has been uh, more reflected within the survey data. And we're seeing that breakdown between search activity um, and surveys. And we also have this big groupthink or almost circular reference that occurs within a lot of the sentiment data. So we all look to the equity market. Uh, we all know that we can use the equity market to essentially forecast where consumer confidence will be for the next month. Um, uh, and I think a lot of that's feeding into some of the more rosy consumer confidence numbers, um, as well as the PMIs. Uh, and again, that's some, somewhat of the distortion and um, why we seem to like to uh, rely on this search activity for the most part. So let's talk a little bit more about that uh, search activity. How do you take, how do you get the data, first of all? What does uh, Google make available? And then how do you present it in a form so that it's usable? Because there's obviously seasonality uh, factors. The um, You know, you can't just look at searches for a vacation and see whether they go up or down because people don't vacation at the same uh, at the same pace all year round. So how do you get the data from Google? What's that process like? And then what do you do to actually put it uh, in a format such that it's uh, not just noise for investors? Like, just describe it overall, how it works. Sure. So we are able to access, just like anybody else, via Google Trends, which there is an API to be able to grab that information. And what we do is we avoid using the specific search terms. So if we're just going to say wash machine or vacuum, um, that will include specifically that exact term. Um, and we know that there can be multiple variations of those actual text terms. And so we want to pick up on that. The beauty is Google curates and creates two different types of groupings of search activity. And they do this for you know each and every country, essentially, which is going to take care of the major language barriers and issues that we'd run into as well. And so that is, they create categories, uh, which there are uh, roughly 140 plus different categories, everything from accounting services all the way out to urban transportation, which would be things like Uber and Lyft. And then they have topics, and that can be anything from inflation or those talking about disinflation or gold bugs or Bitcoin. Um, and that's going to then be more encompassing and based on their mapping of uh, a numerous, new, it can be hundreds, if not thousands, thousands in certain cases of different search terms and phrases that then get housed underneath those individual um, topics. Wait, can I, can I stop you and ask you a quick question right there? Sure. The data that you're able to draw, just to make clear, is at the granular within those hundreds or thousands of terms, you're able to get data for each one of those. You could see beyond just the sort of general categories. 
Yeah, so we can drill okay. down. There are ways to drill down within the individual categories so we understand what the actual searches are within those categories. Yeah. Uh, but in order to create a more encompassing uh, indication of what the consumer or business is looking for or thinking about, uh, we do then pull in that search trend, essentially, uh, that's going to be an aggregation of all, uh, of all those searches underneath a, a given topic or underneath a given category. And like I said, the, one of the greatest things about the, uh, the way that Google sets this up is that you are then able to say, let's look at urban transportation, you know, Uber and Lyft. And let's look at it not just here in the US, but let's go to uh, somewhere like Germany, or let's go to Australia, or let's go to Japan. Um, and they take care of, fortunately, a lot of the language barriers in that uh, urban transportation that is translated into into um, you know Japanese or um, you know whatever is being you know German and so on. Right. Um, so getting into the crux of how we then uh, digest and use that information, like you said, is there's a high degree of seasonality. Of course, it can be like with clothing, with back to school, or it can be accounting services coming into March, April, and October. Um, so we do decomposition where we'll we'll break down um, each individual uh, topic or categories search activity into three components. And that is its overall trend component. You can think of it as like a, as kind of a slower moving average trend uh, of that search activity. And then we have the seasonality that we're able to then strip out. And then we also have this thing that we call the residual or the shock. What's interesting about the experience that we've seen here in um, with COVID-19 is we were never so interested in the shock component and the very quick um, shifts in search activity, either positive or negative, until COVID hit when we saw just substantial mm. you know, breaks uh, from these trends and what would be expected by seasonality. And that can be anything from the searching for you know, fiscal policy news, economic news, uh, how individuals are searching online then for groceries um, and making those type of you know, consumer staples purchases. But getting back to it, the idea is to break it down into those three components so we get an idea of what is the, you know, the long-term trend um, and shift really potentially in search activity. How does that relate then to, to what we're seeing within financial markets and overall economic data? And then what are the shock components regarding those big distortions or shifts away from those underlying trends? What does that have to tell us um, about how things may be abruptly changing in the near term um, and what that's going to mean? mean, of course, for potential volatility um, in equity markets, uncertainty in general um, from the consumer base, um, and so on. And so what we do is we, we pull down those three pieces of information that then gets used within our uh, written content as well within our own models and our clients' models um, and so on. So correct me if I'm wrong, but the data that you're using is mostly public data. If investors all have access to the same data, how are they using that to actually generate outperformance? How do they differentiate how they're using the data versus how another fund or another investor might be using the data? Right. So, I mean, that's that's the question we get, we probably get the most is since we do deal mainly, again, with, with public forms of data, there's plenty of, of alternative data that is private in the credit card space and spending um, and so on, is I, we try to uncover data we think that is underutilized. Um, and in this case, with all of our dealings, specifically with fixed income portfolio managers, pension fund managers, um, and the like, uh, the use of search activity on a broader scale, on a country by country, even a metro by metro level, 
we believe has been underappreciated um, and not internalized to the extent that it could be. Now, like you said, once thing, something like this gets overused or gets used as a key benchmark potentially to uh, filling the latent gaps between economic data, potentially some of that alpha creation could um, evaporate. Um, and that would mean we'd have to move on to some, some additional data sources. For this time being, uh, in all our communications, the front offices of of you know investment managers, um, banks, and so on, have not been uh, heavy users of this search activity. I think that early uses of it uh, prior to the crisis and during the crisis kind of fell flat. Uh, again, maybe the ubiquity of actual um, internet usage and those young to old that were using Google was not there as of yet. And what we've seen uh, over the years, really since 2011, 2012, search activity's ability to fill the gap and really take the place of surveys has improved markedly year after year. Um, and that's something we can measure um, statistically and VR modeling uh, for essentially those turning points as to when maybe uh, search activity loses its flair, loses its ability uh, to then forecast and now cast via GDP, retail sales, inflation, um, and the like. But we're not there yet. So obviously the demand for this data, and you mentioned maybe search data is sort of relatively newly being incorporated into investment processes. But for years, we've been hearing about satellites looking at parking lots at Walmart, or satellites looking at trains, or credit card data that's uh, been out there as a thing for a while. How intense is the search, basically, for new uh, data sources, either on the buy side, the investor side, or you as sort of a data vendor, so to speak, to just constantly be coming up with something that's relatively uh, underappreciated? What does that process look like? The use of alternative data within the investment world, you know, really the investment world was very late to using alternative hmm. data, um, you know, compared to healthcare, even education um, and the like. And we initially saw this, you know, in our routines of going out to big banks, for example, and discussing uh, with their teams, um, you know, how they're utilizing alternative data. It was almost always in the back office. So it could be, um, you know, anything to do with their um, customer relations. It could be chatbots in terms of creating natural better language, natural language processing and pulling in data for that. Uh, it could be trade matching, all kinds of different things that were done in the back office. They were trying to basically bring in machine learning, bring in better data to create better predictions. And it could have to do again with their customers, which customers to call, not call, who's going to potentially provide the best um, um, best avenue for new business um, and so on. But what, we, what we've seen, I'd say, you know, starting roughly in 2017, 2018, we started to see a, um, with the advent of uh, more alternative data available via numerous vendors, the, the increase in transfer to the front office has happened rapidly. Um, and I would say that now with COVID-19 and the uh, inability for econ data to keep up with the actual um, uh, happenings of the economy um, and really the the needs of investors to understand and adjust what's going on with the, how rapidly things are changing. Um, the demand is just intense. And so it calls to us and, and calls, I know, to many of our um, competitors and similar, alt similar alternative data providers um, has just shot to the moon. And you can see that again, Bloomberg, of course, offers some of this alternative data. There's plenty of other repositories to grab it. But I would say that the, uh, the degree of interest has increased tenfold um, wow. since its, its uh, beginnings in 2017. 
what's been your favorite alternative data set during the crisis? Like what has either surprised mm-hmm. you or what has been most useful in, in judging the direction of the overall economy? We've been benchmarking a lot the uh, mobility data that's available via um, Apple um, and uh, Descartes Lab is another one, Google, and benchmarking that off of search activity. And uh, I've been absolutely shocked at how well uh, search activity has been able to uh, predict two things, and that's been retail sales on a month-over-month basis and also inflation on a month-over-month basis. A lot of our uh, kind of point forecasts looking forward uh, based on what we believe are the most unique and important search activity uh, have done very well um, in predicting the rebound in May. In, in, for example, the, the heavy damage done to um, transportation, uh, energy, um, and apparel uh, within March and April to CPI, for example, we had um, noticed the heavy degree of uh, rebound in uh, all three of those categories in particular um, within apparel, which ultimately led to you know an 880% uh, rebound in uh, overall apparel spending in May, which then ultimately translated to um, a higher inflation um, that was reported in June. And so the search activity that we've been able to use, most utilized, which I think Joe featured in a chart um, a number of weeks ago, has to do with a series of, of, of key categories. And that can be everything from uh, beauty and fitness, uh, which is we found to be a highly leading indicator, um, as well as just the general public searching for economic news and fiscal policy news revolving around welfare and unemployment and jobless benefits. Welfare and unemployment, unemployment itself has been a highly leading indicator. And then also, um, one of the things we picked up on very early was the incredible drive for home improvement uh, that really began in the the final weeks of March. Um, And what we had seen was this fervent search activity, um, looking across all all the major metros and all the major um, states of the United States, a heavy degree of need for, or not need, a desire uh, to replace appliances, to paint their homes, to uh, get a new roof, new siding, uh, new carpeting. Um, And this is something that really took place ahead of the CARES Act being signed on March 27th. It began really two weeks before that, which I think was a leading indicator that the consumer would be stronger and potentially spend more um, uh, than those, uh, the naysayers and that we had expected um, to see given the calls for a recession and potential depression, uh, given the full stop Hmm. to the economy. And it's really striking just this week, uh, we've seen Home Depot and Lowe's Post extraordinary uh, sales, home improvements, just been one of the monster stories of this uh, recovery, how much spending and how sustained uh, that's been. I just want to drill a little bit further down. I mean, it's clear that like, okay, if someone identified that trend at the end of March and uh, saw what was going on, there were huge investment opportunities because like, again, like I said, Home Depot, Lowe's, et cetera, huge beneficiaries, their stocks have been on extraordinary runs due to this uh, desire for people to like you know, renovate and fix things in their home while they're uh, you know working from home and so forth. How then do in your clients and when you talk to them, how do they actually make a decision buy or sell based on the data and the context that you're giving them? What is the, the you know, that's sort of the the last mile question, so to speak. They can get the data from you, but then how are they actually using it to uh, form a view and uh, take a risk? 
both on a subjective and also on an algorithmic basis, we have uh, many, many clients that are effectively uh, now casting. And so they're now casting um, either econ data, uh, the econ environment, and then as well, the financial, the impact on the, on the actual financial market in terms of produ- producing their own actual forecasts of where things will be one week to six weeks to 12 weeks later. So the search activity um, is one that uh, we found provides a lead time um, that's more, you know, kind of medium term uh, as opposed to ultra high frequency short term. So, uh, you know, within the, the searches, just like survey data, um, we're not going to be able to help someone um, if, if effectively make a decision for that day. You know, what is the next 24 hours of economic activity? Are people buying more watch machines? Are they buying more cars? Um, are they buying more apparel? It's not, that's not exactly how it works. It's a more immediate term, medium term focus of um, you know, varying lead times, typically from one week to eight weeks. So we have things, for example, like apparel, um, uh, that will have a lead time of days to a week. Um, and then we'll have things like building materials or roofing uh, that will have a lead time of seven to eight weeks. So then what our customers and our clients are doing is taking that information in, uh, understanding those lead times, and then either inputting it to their own subjective decision-making process in order to affect their decision. It could be a risk management one in regards to their actual book or their position to determine if there's something that could be disruptive to their position, or it could be on the flip side, someone that's actually, um, you know, using it on a more tactical basis uh, that is then inputting it to their own now casting forecasting process and then coming up with their own conclusion um, of how well that supports or doesn't support their their general idea. But um, with this data, along with a lot of the natural language processing data that we work with, um, does not have a high frequency basis. This is something that's more medium term, if not long term in nature. Ben, last thing, like, where do you see, what's the next big thing for you in terms of, I just thinking back to when you said, okay, at some point, the search data will get more used, the, it'll get more commodified, the alpha from having access to it will theoretically diminish. What are the next frontiers in terms of uh, data that you think are interesting and potentially still underappreciated or underutilized at this point? So I think the advent of mobility data, for example, with like Descartes Labs that's able to Mm. um, zero in on uh, specific retailers and look at the actual foot traffic um, that's occurring, coming to them, going away from them. It can be also down to, you know, parks um, at specific locations within different metros or rural areas. I think this mobility data, which we don't have a high degree of historical data to work with, is something that moving forward uh, will become more and more um, of the leading indicator that I think individuals will seek for. Unfortunately, you know, Apple, Google, and Descartes Labs have, you know, they sell this data, so it's not necessarily publicly available. Um, but I think as we build a, a larger and larger track record in order to benchmark that against anything, it begins search activity, survey information of how consumers are operating, where they're moving and what they're doing. I think that is more or less the kind of the cutting edge and leading edge of understanding the consumer and then how they're interacting with retail, um, interacting with people around them, using urban transportation um, and so on. And obviously in this environment of COVID-19 with how much uh, we were not moving around in March and April, um, I think it'll be critical um, here moving forward to get a better grasp on how much uh, of a revival um, economies are seeing and how mobile people have become or it will be one of the fun ones we didn't talk about but i know it's uh it's definitely um you know fringe too just because it's it's such a strange space is that the twitter sentiment is one that's huh. become i think more and more useful 
um, in terms of gauging actual investor sentiment. It's been pretty wild to watch the number of uh, economists and even formal central bankers that have that popped up on Twitter that use it pretty voraciously. We even have like Christia Freeland, um, who just took over a finance minister in Canada. There's just such noteworthy individuals. And it's it's become something that's become more and more predictive, I think, not necessarily of direction of equity markets, but more or less a gauge of uncertainty um, and you know financial market volatility. Um, so we've built a lot of algorithms to- Is this like uh, another thing where it's kind of like, because I know people were like interested that 10 years ago, but there yes. probably just wasn't enough interest. There weren't enough people on there for Twitter to, or social media to be representative, but sort of like kind of like search where you can actually get a big enough cross section that it's meaningful. Exactly. So that's the, the what's w absolutely wild is the number of people provi providing original content and the speed by which they are actually tweeting has accelerated just demonstrably. Uh, so we saw this incredible crescendo in tweet and in, in Twitter activity in FinTwit uh, through really the middle of March, and it's just held there ever since uh, with this COVID you know pandemic. Everyone at home um, and really grasping for information. Uh, so it's been fun to be able to break down all the different components of Twitter, which we do into is based on clustering prior to uh, the financial crisis. We break it down into permables, bears, pragmatists, um, economists, um, and the like, uh, and then able to grab out, you know, how are they feeling about liquidity in the market? How are they feeling about the equity market, COVID-19, um, the consumer, um, and so on. And it's amazing uh, pulling in that information, like you said, prior to just three or four years ago. Its ability to actually get ahead of and forecast, uh, you know, volatility and maybe a little bit of financial market uh, direction is 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 improved uh, significantly. So it's 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 been an interesting space to dabble into. Ben, that was great. Ben Breitholt, really appreciate you uh, joining us. This is, feels like such a big area. There's uh, such a uh, clear explanation of how it all works. So thank you for coming on Oblo. All right, thanks, Joe. Thanks so much, Ben. It was really interesting. I thought that was great. You know, I do feel like just from us, from a media perspective, we've never used alternative real-time data as much as we have over the last six months. And so I thought it was great to hear how it's actually collected and then how it's actually used to put into uh, an investment process. Yeah, it's funny, like thinking back to this now, but I remember in, I guess it would have been February, telling someone about how we were tracking uh movie bookings in or theater bookings in South Korea because of the COVID outbreak there. And the person mm. I was telling it to just thought it was like so unusual and so amazing. But of course, now everywhere around the world, and especially in the US, people are looking at right. all sorts of, of those kind of things from restaurant bookings to the mobility data that Ben was talking about. Um, it's kind of become normal. Yeah. And I'm really fascinated by the sort of, uh, you know, the, the speed with which sort of alpha deteriorates. So you can imagine the first person who really discovers that search indications for certain terms has some predictive value. There's a lot of money to be made in that. But look, I mean, we're talking about it on the podcast and Ben's active and pretty soon you have to figure that'll be table stakes and people will be searching for the next, the next thing and that that is a process that will essentially never stop. Yeah, I think that's right. But also, I think what becomes clear from speaking with Ben is that understanding 
the data, yes. how it's collected, and how you can actually apply it is really, really important. So even with something like the mobility data, it's very useful at the moment, but I think it's benchmarked to early January or something like that. So it's really good to be aware when the summer comes around that the benchmark that you're comparing the data to might not be you know, yeah. completely applicable to warmer weather. So there's all these quirks yeah. in each data set that you really have to get to know. Yeah, totally. I mean, even with the Google data, just having the sort of experience to adjust for seasonality takes, those are all things that if you were to say, if I were to just look on Google Trends and look at vac, um, uh, vacations, it would be hard for me to get much signal unless I really like understood the data and had experience working with it. Mm, yeah, exactly. All right. Shall we leave it there? Yeah. Okay. This has been another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me at The Stalwart. And you should follow our guest, Ben Breitholt, on Twitter. He posts tons of interesting charts from the uh, the Arbor Research work that they do. Follow him at Ben Breitholt. Follow our producer on Twitter, Laura Carlson. She's at Laura M. Carlson. Follow the Bloomberg head of podcast, Francesca Levy, at Francesca Today. And check out all of our podcasts at Bloomberg under the handle at podcast. Thanks for listening. <laughs>